this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my Valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. everybody you're listening to the grand podcast abyss i'm your co-host john pastelli and i'm here with the jazz singer sam worthington how are you doing today sam oh, i'm doing well john you know I, I don't mind being a jazz singer there's a lot of great jazz singers at least i'm not a peter singer <laughs> what's a peter's oh, oh peter. peter singer the uh, eugenicist yeah, right. <laughs> fair enough um, at least i'm not a peter yeah. singer I thought yeah. it was. I thought you were saying a German word. Um, no, but uh, that's appropriate because we're going to talk about philosophy today. Yeah, we're going to talk about philosophers. Peter Singer is one of those guys you might see in a high school philosophy class. Don't eat the animals. Mm-hmm. Be nice. It's as simple as that. I should say alleged eugenicist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What are we calling everybody eugenicists these days? <laughs> I mean, my, I've never read Peter Singer, Peter but I, Singer. I understood him to I say said. that. Uh, you should abort uh, yeah. Down syndrome babies or something, yeah. which I, we don't endorse here at Grand. Yeah, uh, Peter, Sing- Peter Singer is like the uh, Peter Singer is one of those uh, uh, philosophers I had in high school philosophy. Apprehended maybe twenty percent through the the marijuana fumes, but who who cares about who cares about Peter Singer right now? Um, because we're going to talk about <laughs> we're going to talk about. Another philosopher, mm-hmm. a much more important philosopher and political scientist, a man who doesn't really think about animals. No. He uh, thinks about def- humans. Yeah, I think um, a, a speciesist, you might say, someone who thinks of the exceptionality of humans. Mm-hmm. And a man who advocates a system in which maybe more than any other man can raise himself from an animal-like state and join civil society. Mm-hmm. And enter new forms of productiveness and prosperity and democratization. And he, his name, maybe we can describe him and people can begin to, to guess. figure out who we're talking about. <laughs> if, you, if you had to surround this philosopher and give people more clues, what would you say? Maybe, I mean, his name is used a lot. He's, he's almost a brand. Yeah. And people will often reference his key idea without fully largely without having read the book that expresses it. And I, I'm guilty of this myself over the years. Um, I only read the book myself in total, like almost a 400-page book uh, recently and I've just written about it. And people will drop this name or this idea without sort of going into the details, and they'll drop it in a way that makes it sound absurd, that makes it sound like the stupidest thing you could possibly believe. But if you actually pursued his argument, you'll see that there's some persuasiveness to it. That's right. To use this philosopher's name today is idiomatically is to say, uh, is to describe a situation as making a huge prediction and having it be wrong. Right. That's how this philosopher's name is used. Yes. He's treated almost as a like a, like a failed prophet, like one of those 19th century 
people that was always saying the world would end next Thursday mm-hmm. and then, you know, it didn't. And they had to have a new mm-hmm. vision and predict it would end the subsequent Thursday. Mm-hmm. But really this isn't uh this isn't a fair way of reading. Here's him. here's some uh other clues. His last name, the first letter is the same as the letter of his first name. Yes. And there's a K and a Y. Right. In his last name. Yes. Any guesses? <laughs> Just pause pause the podcast. Yeah. Not if you're on a crosswalk or something, but <laughs> think about uh, it. Um, <laughs> but obviously, of course, we're we're talking about Francis Fukuyama yeah. and his thesis about the end of history. Fukuyama. Fukuyama. And, and you know, I got him from Zizek in 14 because that was a motif for Zizek. He's like, you, you know, Fukuyama, mm-hmm. was he right? He wasn't right. And so I'm I'm coming, uh, a good portion of my behavior can be explained by those formative years in the Zizekian river, <laughs> drinking from the river, which... I'm not a fucking shamed of. You're right. <laughs> yeah, not one bit. Uh, it's a great strength, but but he mentioned him at, coming at it from a um and to, and I think he Zizek liked him because he trained uh, Zizek thought dialectically and was always thinking in dialectical movements and trained his audience to think in dialectical movements and ways to negate, synthesize ways in and out of contradictions. That was like the mode. That was the the mode of thinking and the, the the way of observing patterns in the world and like grounding theories. So Fukuyama is compatible with that in ways that we can talk about later, right? And um, and his uh, his use of Hegel, but Zizek was critiquing him from a kind of left wing, um, post Soviet Eastern European perspective. But how? What are the ways that he's critiqued today? I mean, where does that come from? Yeah. I mean, I think somebody like Zizek or, or somebody like, <clears throat> I don't know, like Fred Jameson or somebody who's on the, I mean, famously there's, there's left Hegelians and right Hegelians. And I think Fukuyama is best described as a right Hegelian. Hmm. Um, and a le- so the, the difference is, as, as we'll explain, Hegel suggests, proposes, argues that humanity's history is not just a random series of accidents, but it's actually a set of conflicts resulting in different kinds of social order that is actually structured by an underlying logic. Mm. And if that's true, we will eventually reach a point at which we have kind of finally settled among ourselves the contradictions in our societies that make us struggle. Mm -hmm. And that will be the end point of history. Mm -hmm. And the basic difference between the right Hegelian and the left Hegelian position historically is that the left Hegelian is, basically that's Marxism, that the the end result will be a society where um, Ultimately, the state will wither away and we'll all be free and equal mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. liberated productive forces. But there's going to be a, 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 a mediating system there where the state controls the means of production on behalf okay. of the people. Mm. The right Hegelian position tends to be an end of history that is not communist, that's not totally egalitarian, that is, in some cases, something like a constitutional monarchy, or in Fukuyama's case, a liberal capitalist society. Okay. So Fukuyama tends to be criticized from the left because they say 
Well, okay, Frank. Uh, I think everybody calls him Frank. <laughs> um, okay, Frank. Um, it's fine. You know, we believe in the end of history too, but you say history will end with liberal capitalism and capitalism is still an unequal society, mm-hmm. which will necessitate further social conflict until we have a fully mm-hmm. equal society mm-hmm. and everybody is um, economically equal as well as socially equal in the way you claim liberal capitalism. So a progressive linear view of history yeah, in which developments occur as a result of, of conflict and collision of interests ideologies and um and um, actualizations of those conflicts exactly yeah now is that a that seems realist it seems a little idealist because of the logic surrounding it that Mm -hmm. that universalized logic but it seems realist to me to understand history as proceeding um as a result of um, conflict and and contestation and that democracy might be a natural ideal political arrangement for if you accept it for that very engine of history. Yeah. And just I, competing interests. And I think that the Hegelians, whether left or right, think that whatever their preferred version of a democratic society is, it's the only type of society that can satisfy universal human desires and therefore not give rise to further conflict. Universal human desires. Yeah. It's a midnight trip to <laughs> to Burger King. Well, I think so, yeah. I think to a point that is that is one of the mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't always make a midnight trip to yeah. Burger King, could you? Which which is uh a part of a part of maybe Dostoevsky's last week episodes, the right to do things that harm you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. That is a thing. We'll have to get into this, but Fukuyama is a bit credulous toward aspects of capitalism that, you know, it, Which, it, it, it Dostoevsky was pointing out. So the, the destructive drive, the irrational drive, the, or not even that, even the, the thing you just said, which is what if they sell you poison, you know? Right. <laughs> oh, so he's not a big regulator. Regulator. I think, <laughs> <laughs> Two, one, three, had to regulate. Regulator. Uh, <laughs> now, I don't want to get all Paul Wellstone on people, but. <laughs> oh, you were quoting, I was quoting uh, Nate Dogg and Warren G. No, I was Paul recording Wellstone. Hubert H. Humphrey. I'm okay. here in a great state of Minnesota where we breed regular regulators like wild rice. No, that's true. Yeah. No, I was quoting a rap song. A regulator. Um, regulators, mount up. Um, do, do you know the song, <laughs> No, I shamed you last week for not knowing the Snoop Dogg song, so you can shame me for that. Okay, you're too young. Yeah. That's that's the problem. Um, oh, you're too kind. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> what were we saying? Oh, that. Fuku- so Fukuyama would sell you poison. I think he later slander came to see that capitalism needed to have some regulations, but I think that he portrays capitalism. So, well, can we back up? Can I just describe his theory briefly? Yeah, so I I went into something and you went into another thing, but now we're going to this. Yeah, <laughs> this is good radio, folks. Um, <laughs> so, so, Fuku- so clashing <laughs> ideologies, right. smashing, colliding, conflagrating meteorite strikes of movement. So let's see if we can synthesize. So Fukuyama is uh, he's a political scientist. Has an interesting background. I'll, I'll just I'm not going to go into it. I invite you to read his. Wikipedia page, but he, his immediate background was he studied political philosophy with Alan Bloom. And there is a way in which we can call his 
theory like Bloom's neoconservative. So we can get back to that. Um, and then he interestingly took a postmodern detour and briefly studied comparative literature in Paris with Roland Barthes and Jacques Derrida before leaving that behind, coming back to the States and getting a PhD in political science. He's not a chump. No. So this is a serious philosophical, cultural, literary person and who's traveled, I think, all around the ideological spectrum. So he's writing this book. By the time he's writing this book, he's joined the Rand Corporation, which is essentially a defense think tank that advises the U.S. government. You're eerily sharing the same name as an eminent libertarian. Yes. I think Rand is not a person's name in the Rand Corporation. Mm -hmm. I think it just stands for research and development. Yeah. How many 19-year-old socialists hear the Rand Corporation for the first time and their blood boils and they think about how much they hate those (laughs) nasty libertarians read Atlas Shrugged? Right. (laughs) Rand and Corporation? Yeah. That's a double owie. Oh, it totally is. Uh, (laughs) So... Yeah, no, Fukuyama will be challenging on multiple levels to the 19-year-old socialists we have listening to this. Um, <laughs> and I was one too, so I, I, get, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. But he um, writes this book. He, he writes an article first called The End of History in 1989, the year the Berlin Wall falls. And then he expands it into a book that's published in 1992 called The End of History and the Last Man. And the context for this is... Not just people say, oh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yes, but there's a whole series of movements toward democracy across the world that's been happening since the 70s. And that includes not only communist governments falling or being liberalized in China on the left, but also all sorts of right-wing dictatorships and other kinds of militants. Yeah, you write in your, your uh, on the WordPress blog, you write, from Chile to Argentina to Spain to Portugal. It was right-wing dictatorships and communist states. So a moment yeah. of sweeping away and re- refreshing of history. Right. So you have this movement toward liberal democracy that's seemingly going across the world, across the world, across the world. Liberalism, uh, in my view, is a system that's basically a limitation of power based on rule of law. Global capitalism is approaching. There's an element of universalism. Global capitalism is approaching stage where maybe it less and less need democracy. There's an element of universalism. Maybe Fukuyama has won. The globalization has put economic efficiency at the summit of all social goods. Those communists were still in power as communists. China, uh, Vietnam, and so on. There's an element of universalism because liberals believe... Are more and more appearing as the most efficient managers of global capitalism, you know. There's an element of universalism because liberals believe that all... Human beings have an equal set of rights, that uh, these need to be protected by uh, governments. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Compressing the the feasible spectrum of of political society. Yes. And so Fugayama wants to explain, first of all, why is this happening? 
why is it that societies as diverse as Spain, South Korea, Russia, China, etc., are moving toward this form of liberal democracy? And second, being a Hegelian philosopher, he wants to know, is this the end of history that Hegel posited, the point where mm-hmm. we have found a system of government and social organization that can finally satisfy our needs. Mm-hmm. So he says, okay, there's two basic things going on here in mm-hmm. human beings that lead them toward liberal democracy. Okay, okay. The first one's real simple. The first one is modern science and it's leading to capitalism. Because what happens is science, the scientific method really gets codified in the middle of the last millennium and, you know, figures like Francis Bacon and you get the Royal Society and then you get the age of industrialization. And so you get this completely unleashed material productive capacity mm-hmm. in first in Western societies and then later everybody starts mm-hmm. industrializing more or less. An exponential system, integrated exponential system of technology, science and production. Yeah. And that's this, market driven. That's market driven. It it kind of you you could have markets before that, but this leads to markets that are infinitely more complex, more productive, leads to consumer societies. Mm-hmm. And he says, once you have that as an option, once people around the world can turn on a TV and see somebody going to Burger King at midnight, mm-hmm. um, or can see somebody doing the uh, laundry in a warm mm-hmm. room and not down by the river mm-hmm. or can see somebody who can drive mm-hmm. five minutes rather than uh, taking a fucking horse through the mud. Mm-hmm. Once you have this, everybody's going to want this. This is a human universal desire. Mm-hmm. He calls it the mechanism of the desire. The mechanism of desire. To have these creaturely human material bodily needs met. These pleasures, these comforts, this mass entertainment—you don't have to—you uh, mm-hmm. don't have to go to the opera. You can turn on the TV. You know that sounds great, and I can even—and I enjoy that as a creature. I enjoy that in a purely biological sense. I, because I'm a student of 20th century American literature and art, I can enjoy that in a more aesthetic, spiritual sense. Delillo's descriptions and white noise of moving through the supermarket, mm-hmm. reading the tabloids. There are miracles and delights embedded in in this advanced stage of consumerism. You know, so don't ever think that we're in a Philistine society. You're not looking hard enough. I do believe that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, the, the critiques of some of this stuff is that you know, did we really go through these wars? Like you write, did we really fight for the system to be to be um, launched into this uninspired, non-spiritual, materialist, consumerist way of life in which there's no higher honor? It seems other than yeah. Did, is it? Did we really fight for this? And maybe I can give you an example. I saw um, circulating on social media the other day. I think I might have written about this on Tumblr. I think it was shared by Malcolm Shayuna, the Swedish uh, sort of renegade political commentator. And he was saying, he posted this clip. It was, and it it was funny because when I saw it, I thought, oh, I remember this. I saw this on TV when I was a kid. 
it's a Pizza Hut commercial. And mm-hmm. it's a Pizza Hut commercial from right around the time Fukuyama's writing, right around the time the Soviet Union's falling. And the commercial opens up and you see Russia and you see the the great mm-hmm. churches and the cathedrals and everything. And it's snowing and these uh, this family's going through the snow and they get to Pizza Hut. And there's a family in there and they start fighting the family mm-hmm. because Gorbachev comes in, Mikhail <laughs> Gorbachev, the reformer of the Soviet <laughs> Union. And the father, uh, it's amusing because the father is the conservative, which means he's the communist. And he says, right. God, you know, goddamn Gorbachev, he, we had safety, we had security, we had our way of life. Mm-hmm. And the son is the radical, which means right. he's the American right. <laughs> Republican. And he says, no, we, we had tyranny. Gorbachev has liberated Sounds us. Sounds like the American Academy. Yeah. <laughs> and finally the conclusion they come to because Gorbachev's in there with them is they say well Gorbachev because of him we have Pizza Hut that's right and they all agree and they all stand up and say Pizza Hut that's right and I thought I thought, well, You're okay. making me hungry, John. <laughs> I thought, look, <laughs> I like Pizza Hut. I mean, I actually don't. It's not that great. But, um, you know, I did the Book It program. I got my personal yeah. pan pizza yeah. uh, when I was a kid. Pay, pay, pay. <laughs> but is Pizza Hut really enough? Well, here, this this is a good this is a good query. And is Pizza Hut really enough? Yeah. This is a showstopper. <laughs> Do we need to go to KFC after? Is this really enough for us? You guys are full. Uh, <laughs> no, it's pizza oven. No. So, and this is interesting because I'm I'm an American, almost almost a romantic glutton in this sense. Or, and I had there's many branches on this tree, this this line of 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 thought for me. But I I love that stuff. I love that merger with sort of quick and sensuous commercial consumerist experience and how that fits into our efforts and ambitions and our drives and our sacrifices and how we weigh benefits and consequences and how literally the literal infrastructure of our our country and our cities are made to for us to we're sort of the lost tribes but we have all these pleasures and resources to strive but we don't know quite what we're striving for but <laughs> once in a while we'll stumble on some sort of lucid realization you know this is like that american that american pinball effect yeah i'm a huge i love that and i love our prosperity and i love our i love our fatness and i love our culture in so many ways and what this gives for the work of art that we can make as americans the works of art that we can make as americans but i it's tough for me to internationalize that or feel comfortable universalizing that and maybe that's not the sole manifestation of this liberal democratic system maybe that's our variation mm-hmm. it's very nationally specific but i wouldn't if i were maybe i would do it for entertainment for them but if i was in the czech republic or poland i would never expect them to sort of m- merge with what we have but yeah. we have what we have to merge with so there is the limits of universalization with this system mm-hmm Maybe it can take different forms in different places. Um, but any critiques – and then any critiques against that stuff, I understand. I'm putting it in a specific context now, and I understand some of the harms and the decadence. But any critiques from an American point of view, I don't see – if you want to be an American, an American nationalist, like the guys on the right, it's like 
you better you better learn to embrace yourself. Like take the poison, boys. Yeah, like, take the poison. Like, <laughs> what are you being? You're being a woman. You're eating. You're eating all these like little seeds or whatever. You're eating these. You're eating pills and 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 looking at your body all day. It's like you're not right. You're not catching the zeitgeist of masculinity here, gentlemen. Like <laughs> I know you think you're gonna bring the fucking goblet, but yeah, you got to get a little poisoned here. You got to get a little. You got to get a little toxic here. No, but the, what I'm describing right here, what I've just been describing for the last couple of minutes, is a, a society of trivial pleasures and base longings, which is what this Fukuyama system turns into. But that critique. People, the good Democrat will dismiss that, dismiss that critique as the fascist intellectual's morbid obsession. So what did you mean by those dynamics? Yeah, so what I was getting at is there's a whole tradition of criticizing consumer society in America and England. Um, I would particularly recommend a book by John Kerry, not John Kerry, but John Kerry. Uh, so mm. the John Kerry I'm talking about is John C-A-R-E-Y, and it's called The Intellectuals and the Masses. And in this book, he goes through early 20th century intellectuals of the radical left and the radical right, from Nietzsche to Virginia Woolf to H.G. Wells to George Bernard Shaw, mm -hmm. Wyndham Lewis, and D.H. Lawrence, and he shows how they were so disgusted and preoccupied and horrified with the culture of mass production and mass mm -hmm. consumption. Um, everything from suburb, you know, suburban living to tuna fish in a can to mass produced music, mass produced journalism. And it gets to the point where they, they just have this horrible rhetoric where a couple, more than one of them, D.H. Lawrence or George Bernard Shaw, both before World War II are saying things like, we're just going to have to, um, there's too many people and they're too stupid. We're going to have to put them in a gas chamber oh, uh, wow. to like cleanse this society. And, and there's this shock of the consumer society oh, wow. upon people of more traditional education, elite backgrounds, Heidegger, Pound, Yates. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this fascist and to an extent left-wing fascist or communist response. Wow. And it's very easy to dismiss that. And I, I do dismiss it. <laughs> Obviously, I dismiss it. I dismiss this fascist rhetoric. But I do think that if the triumph of our society, our, our liberal way of life, is no more than that it can satisfy the desire for Pizza Hut, then that might not be enough to sustain a society. There might be a, a piece of that critique that we have to take seriously. Is it enough to base a society around material desire? Right, right. So the mechanism of desire, which is one core tenet of Fukuyama's theory, mm -hmm. which has, which is satisfied and provided for in liberal democracy in a way that no other system can like, consistently match, mm -hmm. um, ends up if it be, well if it become an if it becomes an end in itself to that system, you one reaches levels of what. Decadency, yeah, too, too soft. I'm just going to name. Serious. Yeah, I'm going to name a few words. And so, state decadency, degeneracy. I hear right. Yeah, because I hear that one from some of my far right friends. Right, they're yeah. degenerates. They're degenerates. They're bug men. They're, they're bug men. Soy boys. They're De decadence, seed oils. Degeneracy. Degeneracy. Um, Philistinism. Mm -hmm. And so. Maybe a critique of Fukuyama is be careful what you ask for. 
Yeah. More people might be alive, but do they deserve to be alive? Right. Do they have things like honor? Do they have things like fidelity to truth? Do they know what is beautiful and lofty? Or has those values been smashed out of this system because it's, it's such an airtight ideological space? It doesn't allow for... Right. And that's where I think, and I think Fukuyama thinks, you have to take the, the, that charge seriously to the extent that do you really want to live in a society where the higher values become impossible? Right. So it's not so just. So, what are some we, of his solutions? So, he says, all right, one way that liberal democracy triumphed was the satisfaction of desire, the mechanism of this desire. But he says there's actually a different route to liberal democracy that comes not from this scientific tradition stemming from Francis Bacon, but it comes from the Greek and German philosophical tradition of Plato and Hegel. Okay. Because he says, if you read Plato's Republic, you'll remember that Plato divides the soul into three parts. There's the reasoning part at the top that theoretically would be in command of the soul. Mm -hmm. There's the theoretically. Theoretically. <laughs> there's the desiring appetite driven part at the bottom. I want Pizza Hut. I want sex. I want drugs. I want mm -hmm. Marvel movies. Yeah. And then in the middle, there is what Plato in, in Greek calls timos. It's often translated as spirit. Okay, okay. And this is the part of you that is the part that's most social, that okay. kind of goes around asserting yourself, wanting recognition from other people. Yeah, this is important. You're a public-spirited, civic-spirited mm -hmm. person. I, I'm important. Yeah, I'm important. This is important. Look at me. This is what we are. This is what we do. Yeah. And... Fukuyama says, okay, on the desiring side, liberal democracy satisfies both reason and appetite because it's run by science at the behest of desire. But he says yes, that yes, aspect yes, yeah. of it doesn't answer the needs of our spirit, our timos, our, our need for right. social assertion so, and so boisterousness. It's a, a two-pronged system yeah. as it stands. But we which, need three. Right. Because we're Hegelians. Because we're Hegelians, <laughs> which involves rational uh rational rigor and the practical execution of a of a successful system or the reproduction of a successful system which takes management and labor and things like that twinned with a condition of steady reprieve and satisfaction and all allotted uh, pleasure provided mm -hmm. for by that dedicated rationality yep and so it's a it's a nine to five and it's a release and it's a nine to five and it's a release right just in varying degrees based on the individual with varying tastes and preference which the market then provides for in its diversity of goods and services but everyone's caught yes. essentially at, at its worst caught in that two-pronged experience of life precisely so what's lost dimos dimos this desire what's that, what's that woman theranos theranos right oh man um yeah she's so back she's trying to sell it again right oh, no, let her in. <laughs> so. i saw her that documentary and I, my parents were watching it and i was like I don't really watch what they watch on TV. I love them. They always say, hey, come watch with me. Yeah. I can't sit for more than 10 minutes. You know, I'm spoiled by the golden age, you know, Mad Men and Breaking Bad. It's 
it's uh it's all sort of an elegy for me. It's all a mournful walk for me to TV's a fucking graveyard when you had it that good, that streaming shit. Anyway, so they walk and <laughs> they walk. Um um so I was they're watching this uh, uh Theranos documentary and I stay for five minutes. I sit down and the only thing I catch is all the investors and the CEOs that she she uh, swindled or persuaded to invest in this in this uh, company, and there was like three guys in a row in succession, and each one of them were like older C- CFO type gentlemen, and they were like, "Yeah, it was her eyes, it was just the way that she looked at us." Oh boy! You know, you couldn't. It was hard to say no. There's just something. So, well, I mean. That's not that far from Timos. <laughs> Are we on the topic? We might be. Um, Thank you. So, <laughs> Please so, explain how. So Fukuyama draws back and he says, okay, I'm going to now turn, because all that desire stuff comes from the English tradition. It's uh, The political part of it comes from Hobbes and Locke, where we form a social contract to have safety, mm-hmm. and then within our safe social contract, we have the pleasures created by capitalism. And he says, you know, that's that's fine, but it's a little bit, you know, look, I studied complet in Paris. Like I need something a little headier than that. So he says, let's go back to Hegel. And he specifically says, when I read Hegel, because Hegel is impossible to read. It's very difficult to read. It's very difficult to understand what you've read. You're just too rational, man. <laughs> I might be. I might just be too Anglo-American. Um But there's definitely multiple ways of interpreting Hegel. So he says, I'm going to draw upon a particular interpretation by this man, Alexandre Kozhev, who was a Russian-born French political philosopher turned politician who delivered a series of influential lectures on Hegel in the, I think, the 30s that everybody who's anybody attended, including Lacan, Bataille, Camus, uh, I, I don't know. I, I could be saying names that are wrong, but it was a who's who. It was a who's who of of French intellectual. It was life. a it was a who's who of who gives a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the thing about it is, is that it was so influential a reading of Hegel that I was taught Fukuyama's interpretation just as Hegel in graduate school because through mm-hmm. the mechanism of like the complete okay. continental philosophy sure. world. Kozhev's Hegel is just Hegel. So interesting. So the Kozhev particularly fixates on this, probably the most famous passage in Hegel, which is his story of the master and the slave. Okay. And Hegel says at the beginning of human history, there were two men. And this is kind of an allegory. It's probably not, just two individuals, but two. You have my attention. Two groups of people. Um, <laughs> and they they encounter one another. And this is what this is what Hegel gives you that you don't get from the English, which is what they want from each other is not just stuff. So the two men don't come into conflict over mm-hmm. something, over a you know, a pot of uh food or a a, a sexual uh, desire they have or something. Mm-hmm. What they want is to recog- to be recognized as an equal by the other. Mm. So there's this, so Hegel, the beautiful thing about Hegel 
is that he's not a reductionist. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reductionism in modern philosophy. Everything's about sex. Everything's mm -hmm. about money. Everything's about power. That's right, yeah. And Hegel's yeah. not a reductionist. He says we have this fundamental drive that's social. We need to, we want to see ourselves mirrored as equals in our fellows. And this is a drive that is at the very beginning of human history. The, the second you have enough to eat, you will want this. This is Timos. Timos. This is yeah. um, this is this uh, the conflict or the the pursuit of prestige and a mutual recognition. Right. For Hegel, how do these two men? I guess I don't know if they have to be men. That's a good question. We have to ask the feminist interpreters of Hegel. Uh, but the feminist interpreters of Grand Podcast. <laughs> yes, that's that too. Um, <laughs> but these two men, how do they settle this? How do they decide? you know, that they each have prestige. Well, they fight. They have a fight. And the idea is who will be stronger. And that will be the way of, of settling that, uh, you know, who has prestige, who wins well, the fight. You write on the WordPress, one man succumbing to his base desire to live even at the price of dishonor surrenders to the other man, an event that institutes social inequality since the victor becomes a master and the vanquished a slave. Right. So for Hegel, history begins when there's a fight for recognition between two people. And in the allegory, they don't, one doesn't kill the other or they don't kill each other. One decides, okay, I don't want to die. Give up. I, I tap out, stop hitting me. Mm -hmm. And he submits. And the other one says, okay, well, I'm, I'm the conqueror. Then you're my, you're my slave. And you go on to say that each gains a benefit from the relation and each loses something. So what does a slave lose and what does the master lose? Yeah, so it, it's it's counterintuitive because you would think, well, the master gains because he's the master and the slave loses because he's the slave. But Hegel says, actually, the master loses something with his power and the slave gains something with his subordination. And here's mm -hmm. what it is. The slave has to work. The slave... That's what it, in, in Hegel's view, that's what it is to be enslaved, to be forced to work for someone else. And because the slave has to work, he goes out and he has to, the master says, look, I want a table, make me a table. Because I'm not, I, you know, you're, you work for me, I'm not doing anything, I'm going to sit here. Oh, you so, want a table? Yeah, so yeah, okay. I, I'm going to make you a table. Okay. So the slave goes out, he has to cut down the tree, he has to strip the bark off the wood. He has to make a tool to plane the wood. He has to figure out the math of how to put the right. different parts together. He has to come up with screws and mm -hmm. mortises and whatever. The slave goes out and discovers the fact that human beings have the power to transform nature. Okay, so the work. slave is in in proximity with with dynamics of nature with properties of survival and life, which the master, by virtue of his hier hierarchical position, does not come into molecular contact with. Right. The master's just sitting there getting brought stuff by the slave. And then the master also has another problem, which is he still wants to be seen as mm -hmm. prestigious and as spirited, mm -hmm. but you can't actually be seen as you can't be recognized as prestigious by your inferior. You actually need mm. someone equal to you to recognize you. Because 
if the slave doesn't defer to him, he'll just kill the slave. So the slave is not free to form an independent judgment of this man. Okay. So they each have this, this weird disproportion where the master who seems to rule is actually lacking crucial human ability and faculties. He just has power, but it's empty. And the slave has no power, but he's discovered the actual human power of transforming reality. So Hegel says from this fundamental contradiction, the sort of empowered slave and powerless master, comes a new set of conflicts because the slave is now empowered and he might try to overthrow the master. Perhaps rebellion. Yeah, perhaps rebellion. And this might lead to new social relations. And if you see society as motivated by this struggle for recognition and prestige, its logical endpoint is a world in which we each recognize each other as equals. There are no more slaves, and we're all the masters of ourselves and our productive capacity. So a universalization of timos. Yes. Or an, rather an institutionalization of timos. Yeah. Well, that's the trick. That's the trick. <laughs> yeah. That I word, the, the word institution, institutionalize, mm-hmm. that is, that is a, 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 a precise semantic missile in the world of IR and political science. Right. Speaking of institutions. Yeah. We have the right institutions. <laughs> yeah. And that, that is- What the, do they say? It's either institutions, norms, or interests. Oh, or these, not familiar remember, with that one. You know, in my midnight sessions on the Atlantic Council. <laughs> right. Atlantic Council, shout out. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Which institutions you think can best- universalized timos is what makes you a left or right Hegelian. Okay. But that is a democratic spectrum that from left to right Hegelianism. I think, I mean, I think some right Hegelians are probably some kind of monarchists, at least they were in the 19th century. But even at that, they'd be like constitutional monarchists. There's some notion of social equality embedded in the Hegelian end of history. So, so you start with this, the slave and master paradox and the series of, of conflicts throughout history occur, and they reach a point in which there's such a synthesis that the struggle for pe- prestige um, becomes um, available and attainable for all citizens. And there is some hierarchy. There's, it's not a total dissolution of master and slave, but... Um, it's on a it's on a fair it's a matter it's a matter of access. Yeah, Fukuyama says things in the book that will probably offend some of our left wing friends, but he says things like, and you've probably heard this from your from your right wing friends. He said things like, even poor people in America can eat, and like that. There's not there's not a condition of total social abjection mm-hmm. for the most part in liberal democratic societies. He claims. I don't know. John, you had a great opening to this essay on the WordPress, johnpastelli.com. And I want to mention this real quick and and then get into some counterpoints to the Hegelian argument. And you said right off the top, you said the fact is unpleasant for many good Democrats, that there's always been great minds, um, people of genius who are not able to reconcile themselves with liberalism intellectually and within their work. Um, And you say, you know, Pound and Elliot, Yates and Heidegger, Sartre and Lukács, so from both left and right, 
and what's new with today, I mean, that's basically the political moment we're in today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, actually, just real quick, if you had to say who were the great minds on the left and the right today who can't reconcile themselves with liberalism completely, if you had to say today, who would they be living right now? I know that's a tough one, but yeah. just interestingly, um, any well, come to mind? Sure. I mean, you have you have famous still living far left philosophers like... Jameson or Boris Groys or Badu. Badu, Zizek. Um, and on the right, this is kind of dicier because they're sort of banned minds. But, um, you know, people, whatever, you know, they've certainly generated a lot of discourse. Your Nick Lands, your Curtis Yarvins, um, mm. people like that. So Dugan. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I haven't. I've more read about Dugan than read him, but he seems to descend from the Heideggerian tradition, seems to be a serious yeah. thinker. So it always seems people we don't people call right wing philosophers, thinkers, um, fascists quite often. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like there are too many actual fascists. Well, they, they all say they're not. <laughs> they all have a reason they're not. Right. <laughs> and it's a famously hard thing to define because there's not a body of doctrine. But um, one of the things you talk about in the essay is that um, that they all condemned li- liberal civilization as an unheroic affair where cunning mediocrities lorded mere wealth and a spurious notion of universal equality over their moral and intellectual superiors. Um, so this bourgeois class this um, merchant class. Yeah. They're good at making money. They're good at making, they're good at accounting, but they're not, they're not making the world with their hands as mm-hmm. Marx would say. And they're not ma- remaking the world with their values as mm-hmm. Nietzsche would say. They're, they're not conquering. They're not conquering. They're not producing. They're kind of parasites on either the people below or above them. They're parasites, and according to these thinkers, they're suppressing these natural drives which deserve to be rewarded in a just and spiritually correct society. Yes. Which liberal democratic capitalism is not, right? according to them. Right. So these thinkers, there's always been divergences, and that's just something that has to be accepted, and Fukuyama accepted it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the main divergences— Diverging voices that you write about in this article is Nietzsche and Nietzsche's idea about the last man. So why is that notable? So Fukuyama says, for liberal democracy to be the end of history, it will have to so sufficiently satisfy human needs that there won't be any need for further conflicts. There won't be any more contradictions like the one we saw between the the master who doesn't work and the slave who doesn't have power. And he says, so let's think through this. And he, he picks Nietzsche's concept of the last man. So what Nietzsche says in one of his books is that the, basically the liberal democratic social, the society of social equality produces people who lack spirit, who lack timos. Another phrase Fukuyama uses from C.S. Lewis is it produces men without chests, uh, men who don't have any conquering will at all. And Nietzsche says this produces the last man who he says, you know, we're happy and he blinks uh, because he 
he doesn't want for anything. He can go to Burger King at any hour and he can mm-hmm. watch porn at any hour mm-hmm. and he can talk to uh, someone on OnlyFans at any hour and mm-hmm. he can eat and satisfy his sexual urges and he needs nothing and he wants nothing. Mm-hmm. And he's the last man. He can work a job. He and can work a little job. His health benefits. Until he's 26. He can binge watch Netflix. Yeah. Uh, you, you call this the last man. A cow-eyed consumer so lost in complacent satisfactions that he lacks any timos at all. Yeah. Do you have any honor, man? Right. The Yankee, a northern liberal. Right. Your cuck, your soy boy. Right. And we're a warlike people. And there's a there's actually a practical problem with this, I think, in Fukuyama's view. Which is, so he's not just making that fascist aesthetic critique. He says there's actually a problem with this. Which is, and he uses the example of World War One. He mm-hmm. said, in World War One, beginning of the twentieth century, Europe has been internally at peace in many respects since the Napoleonic Wars, mm-hmm. give or take, you know, the Crimean War or whatever. And <laughs> let's just bracket off colonialism; that's a whole other thing. Um, but internally, Europe's been at peace for a hundred years. It's been what I think George Steiner called the Garden of Liberal Culture, just this. Mm world of a an emerging middle class society still aristocrats you know in places of power but you know it's very civilized there's there's mm-hmm. operas and novels and cafes and mm-hmm. and all of this and, and nurses and nurses right and fukuyama says when world war 1 breaks out there are crowds in every european capital massing and saying Yes, finally, something's happening. Something, something we can, uh, we that'll tell us we're alive. Glory, glory, honor, honor risk, risk, adventure. Um, and Fukuyama says the the practical problem is not that we have some Bronze Age pervert like contempt for the last man on the grounds that we dislike his uh, disposition. It's that he might become a killer out of this kind of hidden self disgust that he doesn't know about and will join any crusade that comes along okay. just to break out of his own comfort because we weren't made for comfort. We were made for time. Okay. You know? Okay. That's Fukuyama saying this. I think so, yeah. So he doesn't – because I was under the impression that he saw this uh, – the last man or the, 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 the bug man. He saw this not as, um, not as a permanent feature of human nature – which system must adapt itself to and allow it to be expressed in positive ways, but as sort of a wrinkle that will be ironed out by the benefits of liberal democratic progressive history. But you, you just, you just said that he, he sees it, he, he reckons with it more as an aspect of human nat- nature that must be dealt with within the system or it will it will potentially destroy the system. Yes. And this is where I think Fukuyama, it's difficult to give him a political label, but he's often called a neoconservative. And I think this is where we maybe see what it's we- It's the neocons. What we, it's the neocons. What we might see. And he did. Uh, he initially supported the Iraq war. Then he withdrew his support. And I think he votes Democrat now, though so do all the other neocons. But- It's all about the military industrial complex. <laughs> They're neocons. They're neo- <laughs> That's my uh, uh, Mark Levin impression. Right. <laughs> he was mocking the, the nationalist critique of the neocons. Was he? Sometimes I watch Life, Liberty, and Levin. I yeah, it's on Sunday nights. Um, yeah, yeah. He looks like one of the economics <laughs> professor I had in college. So it's 
good to remind yourself of the the, the staunch authorities in in, in our society. Right. And he was. He was. I like. He was. I liked it. He was mocking the neocons. <laughs> I mean, he was mocking the nationalists. Yeah. He was like, "Oh, what is it? What if it's the neocons? The neocons." So my understanding of neoconservatism and its origin is it's a bunch of guys, not all guys, a uh, Midge Decker, Gertrude Himmelfarb, um, a bunch of people who had been liberals or Marxists in some cases, and they actually in around the time of the the social revolt of the sixties they came to feel that some of the social disorder occasioned by the liberalization of our society in the 60s made them realize, so I think they claimed, that liberal society needed to be supplemented by elements of illiberalism in different aspects of culture. So, Okay, so this is a post-war neoconservative theory. Yeah, that we too casually, look, we neoconservatives, we're Democrats, we are liberals, we were we were Trotskyists. I'm Alan Bloom, I have a young male lover, you know, we're not barbarians here, we're sophisticated worldly people, but it might be the case that for a liberal society to function, it can't be producing this consumer like animal, mm-hmm. it might need elements like the family, the church, rigorous standards in culture to fortify itself from within. Well, you talked about uh, on johnpistelli.com, you talked about this recognition of the need for a pressure release valve within li- liberal democracy because we can't be all equal. You know, mm-hmm. we can't suppress the drive to conquer. We can't suppress Timos. Yeah. We can all be socially equal, but not equal in every respect. Yeah. We can be fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anytime anyone says that to me, I say, oh, so that means that you're fiscally stupid and socially stupid. Right. <laughs> That's how you explain your politics. Yeah, see, I'm a uh, 90s kid and that we were all that way in yeah. the 90s. That was the this spontaneous the, the, ideology. The paradigm. The yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I understand it. Yeah. Um, but you write, as a solution, he proposed that liberal society must allow illiberal pockets in private life. So it's religion, sports, art, to drain humanity's incorrigible timos away from the political realm while still satisfying our urge to rise up and be recognized as not merely equal, not merely equal to, but better than our neighbors in at least some arenas. Yes. So he has, he uses these Greek words, which I'm not going to try to recall, but he says there's basically two ways to satisfy timos. One of them is you can be equal to your fellow to your neighbor, or you can be superior. You can be recognized as his equal or recognized as his superior. And let's be honest, both of those are meaningful. Both of those are natural. And um, both of those are um, inherent drives of of every person, probably, to some extent. Yeah. Maybe not every person. but And he says the way to protect liberal society from merely producing last men that will lead to calamities like the First World War is to allow within it spaces of illiberalism where inequality can prevail. You can be the best football player. You and, can be the best novelist. You and can, be publicly recognized. And be publicly recognized. Very important. Right. You can join a church and that's your priest and that's your God above you. And so you go to 
Washington and we're all socially equal, but then you go to church, you go to the opera, you go to the stadium, and that's where that illiberal desire is discharged. Well, let me uh, let me read what you uh, how you finish this paragraph. I love this paragraph. You said, to put it more coarsely than he does, we may need a little fascism in our poetry or our football games or our church services to keep fascism out of government. Yeah. Very provocative. I I do put it provocative. Well, I've always been a big defender of the autonomy of art. That was the topic of my doctoral dissertation. It's kind of the topic of my first uh, big novel. It's the topic of your life. It's the topic of my life. Um, (laughs) And one of the problems you run into there is people say, even before the social justice era, but especially then people say, well, you just can't read Elliot. You just can't read Yates. You can't read Pound. These are fascists. These are Nazis. These need to be just uh, thrown in the trash. Um, like some librarians I saw on, on libs of TikTok the other day throwing uh, books in the trash to decolonize the library. And my position is, I mean, first of all, if you're just cherry picking white European examples, you're missing whole realms of uh, illiberalism from people who aren't white males. But anyway, uh, illiberalism in art can, I think, ha- be be a socially beneficial phenomenon because we have it here. We can study it. We can isolate it. We can we can live it. We can enact it. We can experiment, and it doesn't need to leak into the political. Right. This is crucial. Yeah. We can have the experience of it contained within a realm that is more or less unreal. Yeah. It is more or less divorced from the consequences, the of political processes and political decisions. Right. It's a contained, vacuumed, sealed off, not all the way, but sealed off realm with which to process and purge. You use the words purge, you know, a little bit um, not so seriously, but a, a way to purge some of those, what Fukuyama and, and right-wingers and maybe some left-wingers too might understand is natural illiberal drives yes natural illiberal experiences yes violating other people's sovereignty mm-hmm. dominating other people being irrational being irrational and violent yeah. being perverted um being unhinged libidinally yeah uh, avarice pride greed mm-hmm. things of this nature and this was a, such a nice moment in the essay you said i love this this idea, okay, I'll just read it. It is a satisfyingly Hegelian conclusion, laden with the dialectician, dialectician, oh, fuck me, <laughs> right in the fucking, you know what. It is a satisfyingly, it is a satisfyingly Hegelian conclusion, laden with the dialectician's circuitous or ironies. Here, we will keep liberalism alive forever through regular transfusions of illiberalism into the body politic. Yeah. I mean, that's a wonderful paradox and a wonderful image. Yeah. I, I think I, I think Fukuyama's argument is on to something there, that, um, that we can't expect to purify humanity. We can't expect to become angelic. Uh, we can't expect not to want to be seen as superior or to want to have an outlet for antisocial emotions and desires. But we want to have a society that isn't destroyed by those things. And so we have to create a society in which those things have a place to find expression that is not 
the seat of government. That makes a whole hell of a lot of sense to me. And let me flip you in another direction real quick on the topic of the role of the artist in, mm-hmm. in this scheme that we're describing. And to put an observ- to insert an observation, part of the uh, this is this is kind of interesting, but part of the appeal of Fukuyama, the mystique of Fukuyama, the persona, his placement in 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 the intellectual world. You know, one part political scientist, one part philosopher, but what was it really in the Fukuyama brand? What was it really that stuck and uh, stuck? And gave him a hold, and and made him be so eminently like reproducible. It was the poetics in the choice of the title of the book. Yeah, the end <laughs> of history. Yeah, that's not a rational thing to say. No, there is something poetic and grandiose and yeah. romantic, and religious, about it. and religious. I mean, it's totally divorced from any sign. I mean, the end of history. Yeah, and <clears throat> but he chose that. Mm-hmm. So my thesis is that Fukuyama he gave something. He gained in stature and and stuck in this enormous brand um, um, because of his poetic touch of the title. Because yeah. we now reverberating in our heads is the end of history. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not the end of history. <laughs> it was in my beginning is my end. Like, what is my end? Is it end or is it an end? Right. Is it like our end to like reach the system? <laughs> Does it ever end? So it's a properly poetic touch. Which it mirrors and might be instructive about the role of artists within the system to keep it in some sort of equilibrium. Yeah. Is that a- no, that's fair. And I didn't actually mention it in my post, but the way the book is written is a little, it kind of models this structure because his prose, for the most part, is the very dry prose of a, of a social scientist. Um, and I said in my post, it's hard to quote him because. He doesn't tend to express his ideas sort of pithily in one sentence. You you kind of need the paragraph and the paragraphs within the chapter and the chapters within the part and the parts within the book. It's very Hegelian. Um, however, each of his chapters has these poetic titles. He has a great eye for quotations. Mm-hmm. So he talks about C.S. Lewis talking about men without chests. He quotes Nietzsche, who defined man as the beast with red cheeks. That's one of his chapter titles because we have this like this uh, like spirit that makes us sort of mm-hmm. blush and flush in moments of mm-hmm. of excess and con- uh, uh, and uh, conquest. So he, there's these poetic flourishes that keep you hanging on. Like I, one of the parts of the book, one of its major divisions is called leaping over roads because well, that's R H O D E S because Hegel said you can no more philosophy can no more predict the future then you can leap over the Colossus of Rhodes. And Fukuyama's like, nah, fuck it, I'm going to do it. So right. the chapter where he's going to predict the future, he calls leaping over Rhodes. So it's a dry literary performance as befits his scholarly persona, but it's continually interrupted by these poetic touches. And that's And he, he knew that. And that's why this Rhodes, this is my thesis, that's why this is such has a, such enduring influential position in in the world. This book and these ideas, he couldn't have risen to that status without deeply acknowledging like the irrational, artistic, 
contingent part of human history. Yeah. This is a comprehensive man. This yeah. is a this is not a shallow empiricist. No. And one thing I knew about him, I, I saw him on C SPAN years and years ago. And he has a hobby of building furniture. So I like saw him out in his garden building furniture. But I didn't know until after I read the book that he studied with Bart and Derrida. But I thought, well, of course he did. You know, now that I, mm-hmm. I read the book, I see that. Yeah, absolutely. Um now you you go on to say to make a couple of points about how this theory um, sounds and is processed today in, in our contemporary conditions. And so what about that? I mean, you got one school that mocks it for it says it's an absolute failure. You got another school that still uses it as a as a um, roadmap probably for development. It's very much about economic development and getting up to $6,000 per capita GDP and things like that. But how do you how do you see Fukuyama being read today? Yeah, well, first there's the facile, just sort of gotcha reading. So I, I know at the beginning of the Russia's invasion in Ukraine, the Time magazine cover said the return of history. And there is there is a really unfortunate passage in the book where he is making fun of realist foreign policy experts. I think he's has Samuel Huntington in mind, and he says um, basically, "Well, these people are so uh, these people are so wedded to their idea that they think even a non-communist Russia will still be expansionist." Uh, and so, in in that respect, he was he was wrong and maybe mm-hmm. too too confident. Um, however, I think that. He's largely still correct in as much as he says, we can't think of anything completely different from liberal democracy that would also be better and that would right. be universal. Those are the two conditions. It has to, well, those are the three, sorry. Those are the three conditions. It has to be completely different. It has to be universal. So it can't just be, you know, ethno nationalism or, you know, and we do this religion. And it has to be better. And I can't think really of an ideology today that has commands vast loyalty in the West or even in the East that answers that description. Mm. You know? And he considers, he says the only one he could really think of in 1992 was political Islam. But he said the problem with that is it doesn't seem to be winning many converts outside the kind of historical Muslim world. Mm-hmm. So Outside the aggrieved mm-hmm. and the, the devoted. Yeah, and he says it doesn't seem to be universal. It seems to be confined to its mm-hmm. historical area. And he mm-hmm. says Christianity's dead, communism's dead, nationalism isn't universal. Um, well, if you had the forecast, you know, and you're the, our, you're the resident forecaster, uh, here in, here in the Grand Podcast Abyss, about the the role of a potential technocracy or increasing technocratic organization of society, uh, merging of corporate power with governmental structures, techno capabilities for surveillance and social influencing, and how those trends... Um, how those might interact or disrupt like a Fukuyama history. Is that a logical end to it or is that a violation of it? 
It's a tough question, and I do think he wrote another book on this subject that nobody's read, including you, you and me. Um, but it's called "Our Post-Human Future." It's because they don't want to hear it, man. Right? <laughs> they don't want. They they believed him only until it was it was convenient to believe him. Right? They're slippery fucks, you know. There's <laughs> you can't see them. Yeah. We talk about these people, but do we really? Can we really put our uh, point our finger to the mechanisms of power? Is it so dispersed that? Yeah. That um. <laughs> They're forever in and veiled in their own uh, trails of of uh, command and control. But I I definitely see the technocracy as the emerging rival to liberal democracy. So, for instance, uh, back in the summer, I wrote about Benjamin Bratton, a controversial figure, mainly because of how many people loathe his book, and I'm one of the people that loathe it. It's called The Revenge of the Real. Uh, and it's called politics. The subtitle is "Politics for Post-Pandemic World." What does he think he's a Jacques Lacan? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's interesting. He never actually mentions this concept of the real in that psychoanalytic sense in the book, but um, his idea is that the pandemic showed us that we have to live in a completely technologically integrated society if we're to keep ourselves safe and alive. And he says, we have to volunteer ourselves for surveillance, for testing. We have to, uh, you know, wear the mask, get the vaccine. We have to make ourselves available to the state and corporation for the screening of our health. Mm -hmm. We presumably have to make our speech available for censorship, for misinformation. And this is obviously, that's the pandemic, but that could apply to a war situation. That could apply to a climate emergency situation. That could apply to a fuel rationing situation. And that's a world, I said, where that is an alternative to Fukuyama because there we're no longer Hegelian subjects who can right. remake the world. The point of that uh, uh, structure and uh, political structure is to eliminate the rolling conflicts and collisions yes so that's the point is to eradicate those contingencies and that momentum or to neutralize it yeah there will be no timos in that world which in in this precise sense i am a fukuyama yeah in in that you think that would be a betrayal of in this a in, crucial part of democracy sure well yeah. in the sense that i don't think it's possible okay yeah because yeah because we're just too right. fucked up. To- <laughs> like you have – you're wearing March right now and you have the same liberal establishment presses who were telling 80 million Americans that they were going to die a year ago. You have that, those same presses coming out with op-eds along the lines of, you know, we're going to forget so much about this pandemic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, which is the type of rolling, shifting nature of democracy and probably of, you know, the end in the sense, the means of the end and history, the end of history is to um, as efficiently as possible provide a framework for those natural processes and collisions mm-hmm. to bear like the best result for the most amount of people. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Which is like a bottom line <laughs> Fukuyama, which I appreciate. Right. It's like the best result for the most amount of people. Yes. Yeah. In perpetual 
conflict of interests. Yeah. And I think that technocratic thing only— The idea it's going to be freezed like yeah. that? Yeah. That's on, and that's only the one part of his vision of liberalism, which is the part that is rationality and collaboration with desire, but not the spirited part. And the spirited part is always going to find some way to resist— some kind of leveling flattening. Of course. Yeah. Like we'll organize a trucker convoy or a trucker um, um, protest in the middle of rising inflation and like shortages. Right. <laughs> right. This, yeah. I mean. The timos of. Yeah. Of rebelling against that. Yeah. And those dialectics. But do you think that leaders, and since we're talking about the trucker protests, you know, Christia Freeland. Mm. In Canada, she's very impressive. The right-wing um, presses don't like her at all and because she is effective and impressive. Have you read her or listened to her at all, Freeland? I just saw the clip of her saying, we're going to freeze your bank account. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. she's she's painted as a tyrant and, um, you know, maybe these guys needed a stern mommy. <laughs> and. I, I don't agree with that, but okay. <laughs> I mean, well, let me say, I didn't actually mind. There were two re- responses to the trucker protest and um, people were like, so I'm very brutally real politic about what happens during a protest. Uh, you know, I did anti-war protesting in the during the Iraq war period. I think, I think the freezing of the bank accounts is like existentially horrifying to me in the way that riot police cracking a couple heads isn't. I think you have a riot, it gets out of hand, you send the police in, there's a conflict, that's within human nature. But if you're starting to talk about the level of uh, of taking the citizenry and excluding them from the economic realm, I think that crosses the line. Because if this type of protest happened in 1922 in, in Washington State and and longshoremen and Teamsters did, uh, did that sort of... Um, blockage of a crucial artery of of national commerce uh, 15 of them would have been shot right and 20 100 <laughs> years ago so i just say and it much like my <laughs> is this terrible i i almost think it's better if they're shot than if their bank accounts are frozen i understand because, the principle because it begins I mean? to encroach on more uh, a, a constellation of rights and a, a relation between between government and citizen, yeah. it, be, it sets for more dangerous. It's a precedent, you're right, saying. Right, right. Whereas the elimination of the physical body is at least just, yeah. it's I a mean, crime, but it's not a I personally precursor. might rather die than be subject to absolute technological control. You know yeah. what I mean? Okay. I mean, that's fair. I think that's, <clears throat> we have to rethink or think about these things. Yeah. Because, and you see it, Emulated today with, uh, um, or replicated today with U.S. and what NATO's response to the Russian war crime, and people say, "Oh, this is unprecedented economic warfare," mm-hmm. or "We didn't do this in World War One with those regimes. We didn't do this in World War Two with Hitler." Yeah, this is these are unprecedented. But I say. Okay, which is to say, like, our means of war are unprecedented and moral, more so maybe than Russian use of, like, thermobarics or bombing of civilian apartments. Okay, maybe you want to put your chips in that equivocation. Okay, go for it. We'll see. But maybe we're in a time where 
the means of warfare are shifting a little bit. And then like the means of warfare and governance are shifting, not in any sort of ominous signifier to, if we look to history of past types of oppression and, and totalitarianisms, but those means of, of governance and warfare are shifting because many, many things are shifting and they don't necessarily imply the same sort of totalitarian outcomes as they might have done. Hmm. It's, this is an argument for like shifting context. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm is open to it. Um, I don't know if it's sophistry. I think it'll be proved by events, but I think that we would be remiss if we didn't criticize dangerous trajectories. And I, I guess the economic sanctions thing for me would be more of a practical argument than a principled argument. I understand the point of economic sanctions. I'm just not sure they'll have the desired effect. Well, and won't harm our economy in such a way that harms our whole society. Well, I'm thinking. I'm thinking about impressive figures to me today. People like Christian Freeland, Macron in France. Um, we're probably going to get a liberal like that in the U.S. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, but these people are impressive and. I I think <laughs> I think that they have a lot to they're Fukuyamas maybe or they're trying to continue this system in liberal democracy within domestic contexts of extreme like polarity and, and um disenfranchisement and resentment and factionalizing into identity groups. Mm-hmm. And they have to be, if you have faith, and maybe you don't have faith, that they want to uphold this type of liberal democratic system. And maybe there's belief that they're colluding and trying to bring it into technocratic authoritarian system. Maybe you believe that there might be evidence for that. I'm, I might believe that if I saw evidence, maybe. Okay, fine. But um, maybe they should be given the the um the space to enforce measures against factions which say that they're protecting that system in like nationalist and, and social democratic varieties but are are actually the threat to that fukuyama hegelian core i in theory i accept that i wish that a lot of these people were more forthright about the optics of their seeming hesitancy to disown some of the rhetoric coming from institutions like the World Economic Forum. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, the ridiculous phrase we use in American politics about you sister soldier someone, you you distance yourself from some element you find undesirable that seems to support you. Right. Like, why can't some of these people come out and say, Okay, look, the Great Reset. That's the title of their book. Like it's not it's not something conspiracy theorists made up. They wrote a book and it contained this phrase and it contained these plans that seemed to outline a kind of technocratic governance. And why doesn't why don't more of these people come out and say, well, we don't stand for that. We stand for and you know, some of them, Biden in his kind of enfeebled way tries to do things like this, but he's probably not 
robust enough at this point to do it. Um, Why don't they? Well, he does. He does it with the onshoring of jobs and yeah, some of the right. He the, which they, I agree with. Yeah, and they're they're smart about that. I think Jake Sullivan is smart. He takes a lot of shit from Bannon and those guys, mm-hmm. but I don't. I think Jake Sullivan is pretty fucking smart. I heard him talk about. Um, I heard him interview along these lines, uh, talking about how investment in American and domestic manufacturing jobs and the American economy and domestic civic productivity is actually at the forefront of their strategy of um, foreign policy in the sense that they don't see themselves proceeding effectively in adversaries like Russia and China without uh, an engaged, productive, um, committed, like, domestic core. Mm-hmm. So he made this nice, like, yeah, we can't just hollow out. And, you know, the, the narrative about how neocons and neoliberals want to hollow it out and, like, you know, we're basically a, cl- a client state. We provide the military, but we're hollowed out and weaken us so we can submit to international organizations. Mm-hmm. It was not this way. It's not, I don't know if this is, this is how people think. It's like the idea of keeping the domestic core very robust and right. like strong so we can make claims abroad about our interests. Mm-hmm. It's not so simple as like a, um, I don't know, that we're trying to subordinate national sovereignties so as to join like international institutions or there's some like conspiracy yeah. or collusion. Well, and I wish they would be a little more circumspect about their environmental rhetoric. I think that this screaming apocalyptic nonsense about we're all going to die in 10 years, which people have been saying for a hundred fucking years. I, I really have it's no patience for this. I know, I know some of our listeners will believe this and will be shocked by what we're saying. We're not anything so grandiloquent as denialists or anything like this, but this apocalyptic nonsense just needs no, we to anticip- stop. We anticipate it gladly. <laughs> <laughs> we want to see what kind of new shrubs would pop up. <laughs> right. No, it's it's Malthusian. Yeah. It's misanthropic, this nonsensical term, the Anthropocene. Yeah. Um, this, I can't have kids because of climate change. This is, I, I, I need more people in positions of power to come out and say, we need to stop thinking about it this way. Yes, there are environmental challenges. Yes, there are things we can do. No, we're probably not going to do it all through renewables. We need to start thinking about more realistic options. You know what I mean? This is um, coercive. Yeah. This is coercive and and uh, it's manipulating and manipulative. Um, that's an issue. That's a whole can of worms. It uh, is, yeah, yeah. But it's very much connected to – and I give people reasons. There are reasons to believe that – that the nation is under threat from international organization. Sure. I think Europe is obviously a model for that. They're mm-hmm. way more acutely conscious of that than we are. Yeah. Because of the wars in their territory, and they have a union, an international union. I heard Fukuyama say, though, I was listening to him this morning, and he said he'll talk to uh, foreigners um, people outside the U.S., and they'll say that the result of the United States United States presidential election has more impact on their lives than the results of, like, their own internal elections. Yeah. And therefore, pragmatically, they yeah. wish they had a way to vote. <laughs> right. I've heard that. Yeah, yeah you've heard that. And, and, and 
it, it, it might even be that the, it has more effect on them than on us because presidents make foreign policy by themselves, but they don't make they don't make domestic right. policy by right. themselves. <laughs> and he said he went so far. So maybe all the conspiratorials and all the the nationalists and whatever, maybe they're maybe they're on something. I don't know. I don't fucking know. But um, he, Fukuyama went on to say the solution for that. He was interested in that solution of an enfranchising foreign global citizens in sort of American power in some way and franchising by way of the creation of like new forms of international organizations mm -hmm. or he was like kind of yeah. leaned into that. He talks about that in the book. He says, he says the UN, he says the UN sucks. He's against the UN because he, Feckless, he, hapless. he contrasts it with NATO. He says NATO is the good form of what he's looking for because it's only democracies. And the problem with the UN is a bunch of undemocratic governments have a seat right. at the table. And so he he does seem to want some international union of of um of democracies. I think that can I'm 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 not gonna shut that down in theory. I'm just worried about it in practice where as long as it is democratic, it's because we have this new idea of stakeholder capitalism where the mm -hmm. corporations say that they should get a say in government power. Yeah, like a bunch of guilty 25 year olds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's um, just give the keys to the kingdom to a bunch of guilty 25 year olds. So I'm, I'm definitely against that. I'm still in favor of popular sovereignty. With, with 35 ACT scores. <laughs> I didn't take the ACT. How's that scored? I took the ACT, but I, did, I don't remember taking it, if you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> I took the SAT. I wanted to give the other people a fair shot. Right. <laughs> I took the SAT, but I took it so long ago, they don't score it the same way anymore. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I did very well on the verbal and very poorly on the math. So do you have some, <laughs> do you have some sort of conclusive, nice, comforting statement to – Put an, a nice tidy bow on this discussion, this Hegelian discussion of mammoth proportions. I, I guess it would be that I think there's a chance that Fukuyama was and remains right. Um, and for that to be a positive thing, we need to ensure that liberal democracy has not only the ability to satisfy our base needs and desires, which we all have, but also to satisfy our spirited and spiritual needs and desires. Well, that's wonderful. And what do you say to disaffected young people on the internet, you know, the right wing, the right wing sphere who make appeals and, and, and turn their head towards Catholic iconography or paintings of conquests or... Um, who are these 20th century fascistic philosophers or or the people on the left who disaffected aesthetes, aesthetic sensibility, who make appeals and gestures towards who who do they who do they seek out? Stalin, Stalin, <laughs> the, the aesthetics, the the yeah. very the Vertov. Right, the, yeah. the aesthetics of the nostalgia, uh, the, the Soviets, yeah. and 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 they then they watch the Sopranos to secretly <laughs> right <laughs> sublimate their right. their desire for inequality, their timos. <laughs> they have to be polite in public, but they watch the Sopranos so they can off on offboard their racism. 
Um, to to uh, them, I would say. What do you say to them? It, it, and to both groups we're describing, both groups we're describing, they, you say the word, you drop the word liberalism in both of those spheres. Total, yeah, caustic reaction. Right. It's, the, it's about the worst insult that you could drop, or you, and they don't want anything to be anything like that, and anything like that is absolutely corrupt and deserves to be wasted. What do yeah. you say to them? Yeah, that's um, Jake Siegel, the editor of Tablet, calls that the dirtbag convergence. I think that's his term for the horseshoe theory. Um, I would say to them, I don't see a realistic way to get to these alternative societies you would prefer, number one. Number two, the historical evidence suggests you might not like to live in that society, that in your reconstituted medieval Catholic world, you might be the serf rather than the lord, and in your communist utopia, you might be in the gulag and not in the politburo. So I would caution you about that. And since that might be the case, I would say that you should either find an existing institution in our society or build a new one in which you can enact your timotic desire. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I would add on to that, that become aware of the possibilities within liberalism for aesthetic uh, um, assertions, for artistic identities, for the accumulation of materials and resources to begin to, whether they're physical or non-physical, um, to deploy in your artworks. We're, we have more plentiful societies than many societies. We have much, much subject matter. You're getting angry about politics, but you're wasting your mental energy and and you're missing the subject matter. That's right. Read Don DeLillo. Uh, <laughs> um, and then also that it's not only the possibilities for that stuff within liberalism. If we follow Fukuyama, you ready for this? It's the nece- necessity and the duty. Yeah. It's our necessity and our duty. Right. You want duty? <laughs> Duty's right in front of you, yeah, they bro. Do, they do want duty. You but, want duty and honor, never, never this one. Yeah, in this context, it's <laughs> yeah. right in front of your face. Right, it's right. You're not gonna find it in fucking 15th century Portugal. Yeah, you're. It's in your face. Right, that's your duty. There's a duty. You want inequality? Find a way to put it into form that's not within mechanisms of government and share it with people. Find some skill. The system could use more of it. Mm-hmm within the system. Yeah. We need new institutions. You're shut out of the university. Do your own course on YouTube. Yeah. Start a podcast. You're shut out of publishing. Publish your own work. Start a publishing company. Yeah. Um, there's there's still a lot of things to be done in this society. And you know what? This society will give you every tool and resource to do it. And the society that, that you're advocating for, if it ever happened, you would run shit out of tools and resources. You very well might. You very well might. <laughs>